Hey, so my, my yep. guest today is Evan Petronic. Uh, <laughs> he, for those of you listening in right now, um, despite and regardless of whatever order this appears, this is the first interview that we've done on Hate Your Deck. So it's going to be pretty, pretty raw. Um, you're welcome. And why don't I kick off by introducing Evan? And we're going to talk a little bit about his background today. And then we'll dive into what he does, his approach to it. And then we'll talk a little bit about all the things that he hates with, with fundraising decks and all the things that he loves. And then we'll just see where it takes us. Hey, welcome everybody. This is Hate Your Deck, the podcast where we talk about all the things wrong with fundraise storytelling. This is your go-to place to hear why fellow founders, VCs, investors, angels, and other industry giants think that your deck sucks. I'll be interviewing some amazing storytellers to learn what they look for and the journeys that got them to where they are. Your friends would never tell you that your deck sucks, but we will. I'm your host, Mike Lightman. Let's get into it. So Evan Petronic, uh, you're a longtime friend, medium time friend. Uh, I think that's fair. Recent Canada convert. Weirdly enough, you live 20 to 40 minutes away from me. Um, and because of the pandemic, we have yet to actually have ever seen each other face to face. Um, one day, at least maybe we can ride our respective bicycles to Niagara Falls and wave. Um, yep. Across the border. Yep. Yeah. I'll get on, I'll get on the U S boat that does the tour and you get on the Canada boat that does the tour. And then we can, we can leap off jump and swim to yeah. each other in the middle. Exactly. Um, that'll be perfect. Um, so Evan is over at Unreasonable, where he leads a variety of things around um, deal flow selection and interviewing companies, helping them prepare for programs, and recently just hired two people that are going to help him with all of these things. Evan, your job is constantly evolving over at Unreasonable. So I guess the one thing that I really know is that you interview a lot of companies. Your job is to be kind of like a ball of excitement to encourage really brilliant entrepreneurs to want to be a part of Unreasonable, to encourage them. And then simultaneously play the role of bad cop and screen the applications and be like, yeah, you're not very good. Um, and then be the gate that prevents them from going any further. So I want to hear more about that. But I also know you're a former rock climber because uh, you had a rock climbing wall in your house and you're a volunteer firefighter. And I believe you did some pretty serious scuba diving at one point in your life, too. So I want to hear your origin story and what got you to the world of entrepreneurship. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'd love to hear a little bit about how that ties into what you do today. Yeah, absolutely. People love talking about themselves and I'm a, I'm a people. So give me a great opportunity to talk about myself here. Um, well, it all began on a warm night in 1983 when my parents met. Uh, they didn't meet. They already knew each other. Damn it. I was really trying to do a cool thing there. No, so my parents had sex. I was born. Oh, cut that. <laughs> I've been listening to the Always Sunny podcast, and they always say stuff, and then they're like, "Cut that! Cut that! Cut that! Cut that!" <laughs> so it's really a good thing. Um, no, so I, um, yeah, I grew up in Western Panhandle of Maryland, a little place called Hagerstown, Hickersville, Hagersbush, whatever you want to call it. Pretty awesome place to grow up. Spent a lot of time outside. Um, I was kind of like at the outskirts of town. Everything was like a 20 minute drive away. So I did a lot of time playing in the woods, um, exploring. And I was, I was pretty much my childhood, a lot of adventuring like that. And um, yeah, I had, uh, like, didn't have much money growing up, but I didn't realize until later it was because like my parents spent all the money on like solid education and then adventures. Like I'd always tell stories about like, oh yeah, I went to the Amazon when I was in seventh grade, 
Spain and went mountain climbing and, and I'd be like, and then we didn't have much money. And they're like, that sounds like you did have money. I was like, oh, I guess we did. We just spent it on like, experiences. Right why aren't you eating lunch again? And you're like, because I went to Amazon <laughs> yeah, yeah. last week. The Amazon, goddammit. Uh, I remember like our roof was leaking and my dad was like, we can just put a tarp over it and, and I'll, I'll, I'll caulk it down and then <laughs> we don't have to worry about it. And so like, that's kind of how that was. But it got me a lot of experiences, a lot of exposure to stuff. And I think that's what set me off on the path I'm on today, which is just doing anything and everything. But yeah, so you mentioned some stuff. Um, I was always good in math and science. So you're good in math and science, your counselor, school counselor sends you in for engineering. And that's what I thought I wanted to do because I loved engineering. I didn't, but I didn't know. And I didn't know until after grad school is I actually don't like being an engineer, but I love what engineering does. And I love knowing the capabilities of engineering, like the technical side and understanding why things work. But Space I'm not shuttles, the guy. You, super yeah. cool. Don't want to build it. They're all, don't want to build it. The idea that like I would run calculations that would then <laughs> like be behind the safety of something, that just doesn't make sense for me. Um, I do not have, my ADD does not allow me to focus that hard. So, uh, but I loved what can be done with it and knowing the capabilities and, and like what science and technology in general is capable of. So um, after school, came out of grad school, worked at a building design firm. For like nine months and then and it was it was like as good of a job as you can get it was a small team we were really close-knit it was a lot of fun but it was just not in the cards for me and i figured man if i'm gonna do this for the next 40 years of my life i just want to take uh, like a goddamn break and so uh i did the sensible thing and i quit and i moved to the caribbean became a sailboat captain uh worked on boats uh it was supposed to be for eight months turned into three years drank a lot what of kind rum, of sailboat? But a lot uh so this was a catamaran like a 55 foot sailing cat um they just gave you the captainship well no i mean i i earned it i earned my keep uh actually one day in captain school i convinced our teacher <laughs> that the best way to become a captain in the caribbean like literally the best way to become a captain in the caribbean would probably be to take notes from captain ron um famous movie with kurt russell and yeah. uh and so then I convinced her that we should spend a day watching that. And so we did. We all we each got to bring in a six pack. It was awesome. And that was honestly Wait, way it's better. It's like a two hour movie. So how did you spend a full day yeah. watching? Well, a lot of stopping, yelling. A lot of dioramas. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, so yeah. And then I was kind of there. Sorry, no, I'm not, I don't think I'm done with the yeah. sailboat thing just yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. you just, okay. you, you took a class on becoming a, a sailboat captain. And then somebody said, here's a multi-million dollar yacht. It's yours. <laughs> I guess, do they have keys? Like they were like, here's the, the key to the sale. Uh, you know, now you can catch the wind. And you're like, all right, cool. Like, don't worry. Yeah. Uh, I didn't want to be an engineer because I didn't want the responsibility. But your multi-million dollar <laughs> vote is in good hands. Yeah. I mean, listen, there's, uh, it's basically, boats are basically just shitters that float in the water. Um, and if you can, if you can take care of the head on the boat, then you're good. And that's pretty much solid. After that. No, I mean, like I was a, I was a first mate before that <laughs> I spent time. You get to know the boat, but honestly, the people that were captaining these boats, the, everyone who moves to the islands is escaping from something. And sometimes it's as innocent as a career they didn't want. Sometimes it's not so innocent. And they're just trying to put a life behind them. So everyone that comes down is a movie character and everyone's got a crazy movie character um that they're just provided uh by the community and like there were three what was jobs your name? 
well, I wasn't crazy. This is the thing. I didn't come down as like a crazy, like escapee. Um, but as a, some examples, there are three guys named John, like in this crew of people that we all hung out with. There was Silver Balls because he was the oldest one. There was uh, Jesus, Island Johnny because he was born in the islands. And he had long Fabio hair and he was Island Johnny. And then there was Jesus Johnny. Jesus is Johnny <laughs> because he'd do something at like partying at night, come in the next day, tell you, and you'd be like, Jesus, Johnny, you can't do stuff like that. Like, that's <laughs> not... And that happened enough that people just started calling him Jesus Johnny. And an example was he had ripped open his back. Uh, he was in the hold of the boat one day, ripped open his back on some metal. And it was like pretty bad. And he probably should have gotten stitches, but he came to like the rum hut, which was like the local haunt after the, after the hard day on the water. He came in and he's like, yeah, I got this like big cut on my back. And I just don't want to deal with it. And somebody's like, man, you should really take care of that. And somebody said, oh, I bet we could cauterize that. And, uh, and he's like, really? You think so? And he's like, yeah, I bet we could cauterize it with black powder. And uh, he's like, okay. He's like, yeah, I, I like, I keep, I, he's like, for safety, I keep a shotgun behind the counter here at the bar. And so like we take out, we. So it's the bartender that said this. Yeah. The yeah, only yeah, yeah. sober person in the Johnny, bar suggested this. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, you have to instigate. Also, like, comma, not. This is just not sober. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're also yeah, bartender in the islands. There's no rules in sobriety there. So then they get him to Johnny's. Like, I'll do this, but you know, I'm not doing it for free. So they get a bunch of people at the bar to put in money, lay him on the lay him on the bar, put the black powder and light it, and, and it worked. It was gnarly, but yeah, that's the, the next day. Hey, did you hear last last night? I cauterized that kind of fire. You're like Jesus, Johnny. You can't do that. So um. So yeah, that's the islands. And then those are the people that they put in charge of these million dollar boats. So um, I was actually maybe the most sound <laughs> solution captaining a boat. You're the least worst of the people. Yes. Therefore, you you are really successful. That's all you that's have like to do. Most of my you always find a well. group of people that you stand out in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're mm -hmm. like, wow, this guy's a fucking genius over here. Um, yeah. But I also, I took apart boats uh, when boats wash out like stuff breaks during hurricanes get washed up on shore i would leave them like six months and then i go and just dismantle them take all the parts take all the pieces and eventually i had enough uh with the help of my buddy scott built my own boat uh, it's called leftovers it was just built from <laughs> scraps and it was awesome locals loved it um pull up to the fuel deck fuel dock and i'd be fueling up this west Indian would be like part fiberglass hull part wood Part bamboo. Oh, yeah. Part everything. Part like 90 foot sailboat parts. And he'd be like, you, he's like, is that your that boat? Cock from your dad's like, yeah, roof. that's my boat. Oh, yeah. And I'd be like, yeah, that's my boat. He's like, you built that boat? I said, yeah, I built that boat. He said, what do you call it? I said, leftovers. And then he'd fucking die laughing. Um, he's just like white guys coming down the islands. Man. Um, so yeah, it was awesome. It was great. It was fantastic. I had a blast. So much fun down there. Um, and but I knew at some point I was like I wanted to go back to reality. Um, when you drink in college and you drink way too much, it's not like oh I'm not I'm not an alcoholic I'm in college and then you leave college and you get in the real world and you're like ah oh, God I might be an alcoholic I should probably change this. But then you go to the islands and you drink all time and you're like I'm not an alcoholic I live in the islands. And so context matters. <laughs> but at some point, at some point, at some point you've got to grow up. So I knew I didn't want to be a leathery like. Sea bum sitting on a beach, sixty-five, and drinking rum, and that's all I've done in my life. As as good as that sounds, and so came back to the states, had a quarter life crisis. I had no 
freaking clue what I was going to do. If I'm not going to be an engineer, that's literally all I thought I was going to do. Um, before that, it was like Indiana Jones. And then my mom's like, you can't be an archaeologist. They're like, I mean, you can, but like, you're not going to fight Nazis. You're not going to Nazis, Nazis aren't country. the enemies that they used to be back in the 40s. Yeah, it's, it's the more thing. difficult to like, find. They just don't have and much. They don't have the punch. Much better organized. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's just like, she's like, that's not going to happen. And so that, then I was like, well, I guess I'll be an engineer. That's my backup plan. But then I didn't have that anymore. So freaked out. And I had met these two brothers in the islands, um, the Whitbeck brothers. And just like real crazy nut jobs, like in, in all the best ways. And they were wooden boat builders. I worked on sailboats that they had, they had built and, and ran. And they were awesome. And they were bigger than life. Just had these characters. And they'd always wanted to start a wooden surfboard company. Um, cause if you can build a wooden boat, you can build a wooden surfboard and they hated this idea. They, they were huge anti big oil. They were like hated big oil, hated petroleum. And, um, and they always wanted to make wooden boards to oust these petroleum boards from the market. So I called them up and I was just like, I just don't know what I'm going to do. And you guys basically do whatever you want. So like, what should I do? And so well, you should move to Colorado. One brother, Ryan was moving to Colorado and he said, uh, you should move, start the wooden surfboard company. So I packed up, I went out, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, my mom was like, whatever, <laughs> just do it, man. Like, We gave up know, on you a while ago. We have, we, we have other yeah. children that we're going to invest in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, we wrote you off years ago. And so I went out and honestly, like just fell deeply and wildly in love with entrepreneurship. Um, and I was a social entrepreneur. I didn't know it. Everything we did was about like, this is for the environment. This is about making boards that last a hundred years and giving surfers who are super connected to nature, but like disconnected because they use these, they, these boards that last four to seven years and are terrible for the environment. Um, and so trying to like re reconnect those and it was amazing. It was this perfect melding of a very hands-on person, love building things. I love actually doing stuff in the real world. And like every day mm -hmm. I got to go to the shop and build, but then also like plan and design and like, like, like designed and built a 14 foot CNC so we could cut out all of, all of our parts. And like, it was just an amazing thing. And I was, I worked with, I worked with really close friends and, and like, that was also a challenge. You know, you, you're doing something new for the first time. You don't really know what you're doing. I was a 26 year old idiot. And, and like, and almost lost a friendship over it because like, it's just growing a business. That's not, I mean, it's wooden surfboards. It's not like you're like raking in investment here. And it's really hard. It's tough. Um, you're not making a lot of money. And, and so it got pretty hot between us. And at some point I just realized that like, you know, I just need to step away from this. Um, and, uh, but then I was, I was just hooked. The startup life is not the startup life. Entrepreneurship is freaking incredible. You know, when you're young, United States, it's like, you can do whatever you want to, you can do whatever you want to do. You can be whatever you want to be when you grow up. And that's like so patently false. Like if you're not, if you just don't have the physical talent for something, there are things you can do. If you don't have the intellect for things, there's certain things you can't do. It's just like, there's only so far you can go. And that's not to say like, don't try, but I don't know. But like, if you want to be an entrepreneur, you can actually be whatever you want. You want to start an emu farm in the Midwest, go for it. And like, someone will be like, that's a great idea and you should do it. And like, if it fails, who, who cares? Cause like even good ideas fail. And I just found that to be pretty amazing. And, and that freedom is what allows companies that shouldn't exist in like current mindset to exist. Like Airbnb, right? Well, we're going to rent out my house to a complete stranger. And everyone's like, investors said that. It's fucking insane. Nobody's going to do that. 
And it's like, now it just makes sense. We're like, of course. Like at the time, that was just so absurd. Um, and so it's like, if you can come up with that idea and then extrapolate that into like what I'm doing now around uh, deep tech, tough tech, environmental stuff, like you can literally just change the planet and the way we do things, the way industry works and um, really create the future that like, you know, people see in movies and reading books. And so you're talking about foundation well, earlier, right? It's like, how do you make that? How did you get the job at Unreasonable? Yeah. So, oh yeah. So, so when I moved to Colorado, I also became a firefighter passing away and like you pile all that stuff on top of each other. It's pretty bad. Um, so I was in a pretty dark place for a while during that. Um, but the fire, the fire station kept me, kept me rooted. It was like, I just was so proud to be involved. And honestly, it's so, it's so much fun. Like it's great people. You're doing the most ridiculous things, literally just tearing apart cars pulling people out of rivers, out of canyons, going into burning buildings. And it sounds pretty outrageous. Like people always ask like, oh my God, it's so dangerous. You know, but it's all calculated. Like, you know, all the training, you know, the pitfalls, you know, everything. And it's not a, um, a thirst for um, adrenaline or anything like that. It's like, like the, one of the best days of my life was when we were doing a boat delivery in the islands. Uh, and we were off the coast of, we were going from St. John to Delaware. We were off the coast of Miami by 80 miles. And we hit this like freak white squall, which is just massive wind, but nothing else. So you can't see it coming. There's no rain. It doesn't look like anything. And it just like knocked us down completely. Boat like turned sideways, like in a movie, like literally everything just went uh, 90 degrees and boat was filling with water. It was absolute insanity. I just remember my buddy Scott and I like <laughs> staring at each other as we're like trying to get the sails organized. It's like everything's whipping. And he's like, I know this is scary. But how fucking awesome is this? I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> and you have those moments of clarity, right? Where like nothing else matters. They people talk about like in these emergency situations, like everything calms down and like time extends. And it truly is like you're not thinking about your taxes. You're not thinking about like, oh, did I pay that bill? None of the bullshit that's not real. Like all the stuff we worry about for the most part in modern life is totally unreal. It's fabricated by like our part in society. And to me, like peril, like real reality is the stuff where I feel. Um, most rooted and firefighting was that not because it was dangerous, but because it was like the only thing that mattered at that time. And um, so anyway, you asked a question about how I got a job at unreasonable and Daniel, our CEO told me, I made the most absurd resume ever. First of all, it was absolutely insane. Um, but I figured like I better go big or go home if I'm going to get this job at unreasonable. Um, and at the end of the day, he told me I hired you because you're a firefighter. It's like you got a bunch of other shit. You're an entrepreneur, engineer, you're smart, you got all this stuff. I don't you like sales. you. You're not yeah. really qualified. <laughs> but a firefighter but, saved my life. So yeah. this is my response. Um, so and he just said, he's like, I just want someone who <clears throat> at the la at like the last minute when shit's hitting the fan, like isn't freaking out. And jack of all trades and anything. And and for a young company, like that's what you want, right? You want the person that you can plop into a bunch of different stuff. And so that, like oddly enough, that's like that's the thing that clinched it. Um, it got me at unreasonable. So, yeah, nice. So, did I ever tell you? And I'm sure I've probably told you every time we talk that I applied to unreasonable. And one of our yeah. good mutual friends, Julie Markham, uh, actually turned me down from the job. Yeah. Well, I'm not surprised. I wouldn't hire you ever. This is true. Um, <laughs> there's a no. That is crazy. When we when we first. 
when we first talked, I remember you telling me that. And I was like, that would have been an interesting experience. To um, be rejected from unreasonable or to no, then no, become no. good friends with and work with Julie on separate things. <laughs> All of the above, but also to work with you yeah. unreasonable. I think that would have been a pretty, <laughs> I think it would have been pretty fun. Yeah. And also probably um, really destructive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think we probably would have gotten us both fired pretty quickly. Um, Very true. It's a pretty um, wholesome organization. And I would say we are generally unwholesome human beings. I mean, forget that I'm an Eagle Scout. Forget that I worked at the World Bank and was a Peace Corps volunteer. Like, those things are really more for karma adjustment. But me as a person, I'm really just a monster. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's so the thing. It's what like, is unreasonable? What is it? Um, yeah. It's a lot of things, Mike. Um, we ask ourselves this this very day. Um, it's a hydra. We do a lot, and it's one of the big problems. Um, we're like kind of an investment fund. Uh, we're kind of a community membership thing. We're kind of a portfolio. We're kind of a tech company. It's like all across the board. But what it is ultimately at the end of the day is our belief is that doing well and doing good are not mutually exclusive. You can make a lot of money, and you can do have a, like an amazing impact in the world. Um, we think the best people to do that are entrepreneurs leveraging market forces using the power of capitalism and pulling the lever in the direction of good so uh, if you want to fix the world's biggest problems if you want to bring innovation disruption to the market and do it quickly um, it's not to say they're the only orgs that can innovate and disrupt but uh, I mean you could maybe argue with me about this thing tell you to shut up is that governments and corporates are not the ones that are innovating and disrupting um, uh, at least quick enough to solve problems so it's got to come from entrepreneurs. And for us, um, they need all the help they can get. Entrepreneurship is crazy hard. Um, we're going to, you know, we'll talk about today with Dex and convincing people to give you money. Um, you're building something from nothing and then convincing people that like this is the future that they should bank on. Um, and so for Unreasonable, it's really about how can we build a team and then how can that team build a community? of investors, of mentors, of advisors, of strategic partners, of corporates, family offices, and um, nonprofits that then can support these entrepreneurs in their growth. And it's about making the path easier. It's about reducing friction in front of them because they're going to keep pushing. Like you take an entrepreneur and you say like, oh, I'm going to make it so much easier for you. Like 99% of the time, they're not going to go like, okay, well then let's keep it where it is. And I'm just going to go sit on the beach and drink my ties, right? They're like, sick, I can push even harder now. And so if you can reduce the friction in front of them, they're going to go further faster. We work with a lot of growth stage companies, but I mean, in reality, it's really the companies we think are positioned best to move the needle in the right direction. And if they're a little bit earlier, amazing, we're going to work with them. And so it's about so giving them what they need. Yeah. So just to put a little bit more kind of tangible tentacles around this, I know that you've had the accelerator at sea many years ago where people got on a cruise ship and talked entrepreneurship at a variety of fun, different ports around the world. I know that you've done the girl accelerator, which is designed for any entrepreneurial program or any entrepreneurial company that can support women empowerment around Africa. And I know that you have at the Barclays program, we are supporting fit later stage fintech companies. Um, no, and that uh, very often uh, green, the green, green economy companies, uh, green economy companies, even though it's, that, it's not fintech somehow, <laughs> I stand corrected. Um, 
there's always a, a fintech tie. I think fintech people will tell you that there's always money somewhere. Um, <laughs> but I I know that you've done these like accelerator sprints that are two weeks long, super intensive, and you get some of the most impressive names that exist in the world to advise these companies. But can you can you help me understand a little bit more of just like wh- what do you do like so you're yeah. a little bit of everything you support a lot of organizations that want to help a lot of people but i'm an organization i want to be a part of it what's ready for this what's your value proposition what yeah, the hell are you yeah. doing yeah that's the tough thing right um what's the magic that makes the money flow um so ultimately in the day it's about supporting these entrepreneurs uh we don't take any equity they are not our customer it's weird it's very weird to have your customers not be the thing that you're serving the most. So the entrepreneurs are a customer. Everything we do is focused around them. Um, we run these CEO summer. This is like pre-COVID and we're going to go back to this post-COVID. But these CEO summer camps, 10, 14 days long. You bring the CEOs of these amazing companies all into one place. Do this thing we call the island effect, which is like take them out of the day-to-day grind of the business. Um, really remove them as much as possible from that stuff so they can just focus on future strategy what's what are they dealing with now what are the big opportunities the big challenges on their plate how can they utilize this community the people here the other ceos the mentors we bring in in order to to basically make exponential progress in a short period of time um or set the foundation for exponential progress and so it costs a lot to do that. It costs a lot to run the team that puts that together. Like these aren't just like renting out a summer camp and that's it. It's not actually summer camp. Let's be clear. Um, uh, but they're, they're amazing. We want them to feel isolated. We want them to feel like there's nothing else except for what they should be working on right now. So that costs a lot of money. We don't have a lot of money. So you find people who do. And that's why we work with companies like Accenture and Barclays and Pearson Publishing and Nike. Um, they want access to these entrepreneurs. So really the value proposition is in two ways. It's to our partners who pay the bills and it's to our entrepreneurs who are products um, that we support. And to them, it's like, it's a free lunch. But honestly, when things are free, it's actually sometimes makes it harder um, because how good can it be if it's free? And so I think from that standpoint, the value proposition for them is like, have you ever been to a place as an entrepreneur where no matter what and for no matter how long, everyone that is there um, doesn't have an angle? Like it's literally about you. It's not about how can I get a piece of your equity or how can you hire me as a consultant or anything like that? It's just people there because they believe in what Unreasonable does. They believe in this vision, this future that we think should be. And they want to support these companies. They want to be associated with them. So it's this like little bastion of safety where you can kind of come and just like let down the defense and the armor about what is happening. It's just literally surrounded by people who only care about what you're doing. Um, And also to be around a bunch of CEOs that are like you, that like have given up a lot, that have sacrificed a ton, that know the challenges, that know the problems. And it's the stuff that's, I mean, you know this, I know this. It's the stuff that CEOs only can like. They're the only ones that have to deal with it. It's like, oh, my spouse works for my own company and they're not really doing a great job. So I have to fire them kind of stuff. <laughs> um, like who has or that? You know this and I know this. I have a kid and I have all these responsibilities and I basically, I have less time than I've ever had and more things to ever do. 
and I'm letting everybody down. How do I deal with this? Right, exactly. And you lose yourself in the process. And so it's being around other people who know that too and, and, can, and can advise and support. And also just like the challenges of business, whatever, um, personal and professional. So the value proposition of the partners is um, they want access. Like Barclays has no idea what the green economy looks like, what the companies of the future are going to be. That's not their business. Their business is banking. Their business is raising funds, putting these things together, right? Um, but they do see the writing on the wall. And this is five years ago, six years ago, when we started this partnership of like, this is a place that we should be. This is the fastest growing economy in the world. We want to be tapped into it. Um, and we want to figure out how to support. Also, we want to know how to support these small and medium businesses way better. Because like Toyota needs something very different than a 60 person company with like 30 million in investment, right? Mm -hmm. um, very different services, very different products. And there's a whole lot more that Barclays can provide than just financial support. There's a whole lot more there. And so it's an exploration for them into that. And it's gone incredibly well because as you and I know, sustainability, like clean tech had a really pretty rough period like 15 years ago, 10 years ago, but it's back, it's bigger than ever. And honestly, it's, there's a lot of returns to be made because like the market is ripe. Everything's ripe technology. And so it's the, it's a place to be if you want to make money. And the nice thing is you can make money and do a lot of good. And so Barclays is on board for that. And so that's what they're, that's what they're paying for us. What do most of the companies that go through this end up with? Like what are, what are some of the success stories that you can, you know, it could be correlation. It could be clear causation, but your portfolio companies, what have they gained from going through this? Yeah. So this is like the hard question we get asked. Some entrepreneurs are really quantitatively driven and they're like, I need you to tell me what's going to come out of this for me. It's like, I can't. This is, it's, it's very organic. It's all relationship-based. It's all, can we get you what you need um, through the network and through the people and, and kind of knowledge? Like, like, what will I get? And you're like, I won't be able to tell you until it's over. So we have to yeah, roll yeah. the dice and it might be really incredible for you or it might, it, it's almost always incredible for you. And I can't yeah. articulate exactly why or how the magic happens, but just yeah. trust me and trust the process. Yeah. Well, I think part of this is that these programs that we run, these 10 day long CEO summer camps or like month and a half long virtual things, um, there may not be anything monumental that happens in that program. There's a chance. But the other thing about unreasonable is once you're in, like we say, you're in for life. And what that means in reality is like we have a fellowship and a portfolio. The CEO joins the fellowship. Think of it as like YPO or something like that, but for mm -hmm. impact-focused CEOs. And then their company joins the portfolio. And the company receives financing support in the sense of like uh, introductions to um, funders across every asset class that we have in our 1,000-plus funder network. And then as a CEO, you get the support of our uh, mentors in the community, the fellowship itself, anything you need. We have like, connect, we have like a LinkedIn on steroids that we built in house kind of just helps them get what they need. So that comes into perpetuity. So the idea there is like you join an accelerator, let's say it's six months long. That's amazing. You finish the accelerator and then what? You're part of an alumni network and it's like passive at best. So for us it's like, well, what if we continued supporting you into perpetuity actively? Like until we can no longer drive value. And so, yeah. That 10 days, you may not receive the most groundbreaking thing ever, but chances are in the next five years, we're going to really push some good stuff your way. And that can come in the form of like 
you're raising around, we connect you, you know, with your lead. And because it's a warm mm -hmm. introduction, like that may be the most valuable possible thing for you. And you and I know how hard it is uh, raising, um, helping people raise, um, and it takes a lot. And if it's the right connection to the right person at the right time, that can mean a lot. We've had companies bring in C-suite via um, on, like uh, the community. We've had literally fellows leave their company and join another company within C-suite. Um, we have fellows invest each other. I mean, it, it goes, Barclays has run uh, funding rounds for these companies, like putting together the mm -hmm. funders to run these rounds, as well as putting together major contracts with their client base. So Barclays may say, what you have is perfect for one of our clients. Let us help you. And like, instead of it taking like the nine month sales cycle or whatever, we work directly with their team, we can help them. And so again, those are all like very, very specific each some people refine the passion for impact they've been at this for like eight ten years and they're just it's just become a business and then they go through the program yeah. they hang out with a bunch of ceos passionate about impact and they're like holy shit this is why i got into this <laughs> like i forgot in the slog and they're reinvigorated right because up to that point they're just like going through the motions and so there's some really like it really depends upon what some ceos need other people come in and the, like we had a ceo come in and five, six exits they'd had behind them. It's like this person knew business at the back of their hand. Um, mm -hmm. And the thing that was holding them back was personal. It had nothing to do with business. And like unreasonable, that's like, it's all up. Like we support the person, we support the company and we do it equally. And this individual was able to get through via advice from the other CEOs and their peer groups, things like that, through this personal dilemma which had been dogging them for years and uh and that was the thing that was the switch for them um and then they keep coming back <laughs> and it's because it's it's you know they see the value there that's awesome um so it's so good it's good it yeah trust me it's good um, it's actually, good that it's kind good. of to a much lesser degree it reminds me of um many years ago i was in shenzhen for a month as an advisor to this really cool accelerator and one of the companies I was out getting a drink with, and it was uh, an automatic bifocal. So the idea was two lenses in one, and depending mm -hmm. on where you were looking, the lens would shift automatically so that you didn't have two halves of a glasses, but right. like a full glasses and a full glasses without having to switch. And the founders were, one of the guys was a real estate developer that had just sold his portfolio. And then the other one was like a guy that ran a full development team over at Google. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, guys, like, I don't, I know I'm smart. Like, I know that I'm capable, but why are you asking me for advice? Like, I don't, I'm pretty sure that you know your stuff at this point and your successes to date have brought us there. And they're like, all right, like give up on imposter syndrome right now. Like a imposter syndrome is stupid. And like, you get nowhere from having self-doubt. Be humble, but don't have that. But the other thing they were like is, you know, this isn't really necessarily about right now like you might not have anything to give us today but we're going to be hiring in the future we're going to come across other problems we're going to be dealing with a variety of things as we grow and you're a resource that we could turn back to if nothing else you can help us just give feedback on what we're working on you can make introductions here you can provide this that and the other that could be of huge value to us so you know we want to build a relationship even if it's not today we want something that can pay dividends with people that we know will be really useful for us and it's like i yeah. 
can't really argue with that. Um, ironically, I don't think I've spoken with them since that time. Of <laughs> but but what a bunch of the message stuck with me. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, you know what? In retrospect, that guy was probably right. <laughs> he should not have been there. Um, but no, no that, but makes, I, I, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think like one of the things I've found with in in the work that I've done to like advise, and I put that in quotes because like I'm not an advisor, I'm not on anyone's board or anything. But when I my value prop, I feel the same way. I'm like I'm not an expert in literally anything. Like I've just done too much random shit in my life. I can't be an expert, but I know a lot of people, and more importantly, is I really care. And it's in my brain. My brain is set up to juggle all of these companies and always be thinking, like, when I see something, have it trigger if it's going to be of value. I'm like, how hard is it for me to write a quick email and just say, hey, just talk to this person, thought they could be of value for you. You in? And it's like, yeah. to have someone that's always thinking of that, um, because you don't have the time. If you're a CEO, you don't have the time to be mm -hmm. searching right? You're not, it's like unreasonable. We don't take applications because what kind of growth oriented scale up CEO is saying, man, I wish there was an organization that would support me for free into perpetuity. I'm going to spend the next six hours searching the internet, hoping I find such a thing. Meanwhile, they have like client propositions, like piling up on the desk. And Wait, so sorry, it's just like, you don't, yeah. you don't take applications. Well, I mean, like people can write to us. They can like go on the but website then, and click like, yeah. So how do you select your portfolio? Yeah, so the theory in the beginning was the types of CEOs that we want to support aren't looking for us, and so we're going to seek them out. Um, like, there's incubators, there's accelerators, we're a scalerator. A, the very little in that sphere exists, like the scalerator stage. Um, so it's not even something that, like, there's there's no list upon which unreasonable is, you know, it's not like, these are the top five scalerators on the planet. You look up that word, I'm pretty sure I made it up kind of thing. And so for us, we seek the companies that we want to work with. This was a lot harder five years ago when I started doing it, when climate tech was not the hottest thing on the planet, no pun intended. Um, and it's like climate change, global warming, hot, whatever. Ah, screw off, Mike. Um, <laughs> Guess I'm scratching off jokester from my jack of all trades list. Um, funny man, funny man. Uh, so, so yeah, so that's how we, um, so yeah, we do all the searching and whether it's brute force, Google searching, whatever it's at this point, it's like, I look for, I look for companies and everything I do. My poor wife would be like driving and I see a billboard and I'm like, write that down. Like that's a company I want to look at later, you know? And like, it's, I see it and everything. Um, and we get, you know, we get people reaching out to us, but we're still doing, it's a ton of research and a ton of the hard part is getting these companies interested. So network is key, so, like getting intros from investors and fellow entrepreneurs and stuff. So now, you know, we're at a point where most of our listeners have probably dropped off. And now is when I want to oh, ask your questions about Hate Your Deck. Um, yeah, yeah, this is... This is the benefit of being an amateur podcaster is that you really know how to time things out effectively to keep your audience absolutely captivated the whole time. What the um, hell am but, I listening to? Is this guy in a garage? <laughs> <laughs> Where am I? Does he know anything about this? Um, so, you know, 
it's really interesting that you're a lightning rod. Like you're proactively finding companies. You have to really you know, get them excited about it, which it doesn't sound like that's that difficult to do. But then you're probably also simultaneously screening them when you're having these conversations, right? Like <laughs> even the introductory calls where you're like, you're super cool. I want to be friends. You're still measuring what their reaction is. And even if you're kind of that ball of enthusiasm coming at them or the wall of enthusiasm, depending on how they respond to those things, you're probably making some pretty key judgments because you're oh, a yeah. super judgmental guy to begin with. Um, and then you're going to be judgmental on top of that. <laughs> so walk me through this, like, what are you looking for in these companies? Mm -hmm. And yeah, like what, what is it for you where you meet with an entrepreneur and you meet with the team and you're like, I love you. And you're, yeah. you're like, I only want to be a part of your story and help you. And then what are the things that are kind of the in-between? Well, no, let's go with the fun stuff. What are the people yeah, you yeah. hate? Let's, let's uh, do that one uh, too. Well, I think this one's pretty easy actually. So, so yeah. So when we screen companies, like we're not an investment fund. I'm not doing hardcore due diligence. I'm not getting data rooms and analyzing. Like one of the, one of the joys of my job is I don't have to do that because I'm not a finance guy. I actually... Personally, my theory is, and this is coming from ignorance, but also maybe this is the magic, right? This is like when, you, when you're not constrained by the rules, you can change the game, right? Um, this idea that we deign to believe that we can predict the future, like, oh, this is the market analysis and this is how much money they're going to make. And like, there's definitely not going to be a pandemic, you know, like the idea that you can predict all of that. <laughs> to, me, <what's, laughs> to me, what's most important is like, is this a sound technology? Wait, 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 wait. Going? Sorry. So what stage companies are these? Are these folks that are in revenue or are you, are you like looking at this being like, you know, a company is like, well, we've invented a really cool thing that's going to reverse global warming. And all we need is a million dollars to get yeah. out of the lab <laughs> and just trust us. Or are these folks yeah. that are like, yeah, I made $3 million last year. Um, and we want to scale it like to where, where do your companies fall on the spectrum? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've got companies that are doing a hundred million in revenue when I bring them in. We've got companies that are pre-revenue and won't have revenue for the next five years because they're doing some super, super deep tech, tough tech. And personally, that's the space that I love because that's a lot more of that. I'm not predicting market. I'm not predicting anything like that. These are companies that I think will, if and when they come to fruition, they will change the paradigm and like a perfect example of this is like fusion energy literally like the ceos of fusion energy companies i've talked to are like we have no idea if this is actually going to work we believe that it's possible but there's a chance in the that this does not work but and investors have told me this but like if we do it changes the paradigm of energy immensely and so it's like i just saw uh commonwealth is that common light Whoever, one of the fusion companies just got a billion dollar investment and people were like, whoa, holy shit. And it's like, yeah, why would you not? Like that's a drop in the bucket of global wealth. So why would you not do that in something that could change energy? I don't know. Seems like a, like a very small amount of money, if you ask me, for what's being put into companies out there. So when I'm looking at companies, um, it's the like, so dumb. It's like the feeling of like, does this fit into what the future is doing? Also, one of the big helps, and I think this is like where maybe um, being an expert in a field or kind of this like, I work in this in industry is a detriment is you don't actually see adjacent things. So you may be like, I am this. I only work in like carbon software, whatever. 
Um, mm -hmm. But you don't see adjacent industries. You don't see what's happening in storage. You don't see what's happening in grid distribution. You don't see the technology that can like improve um, cable, you know, like above ground cables. Or you don't talk to this company Petra that just came out of stealth that now has the technology that can drill through any um, material on earth, like underground. So any geology, they can do it. And so we're talking about changing what's possible. And I feel like what happens is a lot of times people get stuck in their little like worlds and that's it. That's all they know. And like the gift and the curse of what I have to do is like, we literally, if it, if it's in a sustainable development goal and it hits it, like it's something we look at. And so I cover like a wide gamut in the green economy. So when I'm looking at a company, I'm not just looking at that company, I'm looking at how it fits into the bigger picture. And so I'm like, Ooh, that other company I'm talking with, if those two can make this happen, then like they're going to 10 X each other because they're going to rely on no. it. So yeah. I, I, I want to talk about this, but I, I still want to jump back to this piece around. You're not really looking at the financials of a company. Yeah. yeah. Are there any of the financials that are important to you? Because, you know, I think that there's kind of this thing that I've grappled with where on one hand, investors want to see the hockey stick growth, mm -hmm. right? Like in five years, you need to go this high, this fast. And I had a conversation with a company, um, the other day, I was speaking with the company, not with any of the team members on the, in the company. And he wasn't <laughs> even, the, the person I was talking to, it wasn't even about this. It was a friend that I met at a wedding, um, like a friend's wedding, and just like super cool background, also a new dad. We were just catching up, talking about life. And he mentioned how he left being in politics and he's now working at a startup. And he's like, yeah, we just raised $100 million dollars. Our total market is this. And, you know, he's telling me about what it is. And, you know, we, we re recently hit a milestone where we got this many customers. And I did the mental math. It was like, you know, 100 million total potential customers. And they just closed 1 million customers. And they'd raised the Series B round after being around for, I think they closed like $40 million. After being around for seven, eight, nine years, they closed 1% of their market share. So on one hand, like it really stuck to me that any company that's like, we're going to get this much market share and mm -hmm. we're going to get this much revenue because we're going to grow this quickly. It's a bunch of BS. But on the other hand, like you do still, you need to make money. Like I need to see that there's money being made, that there's a path to profitability and a, a path to an exit because from the, at least the, the proper, I put money in, I need to get money out perspective. I need to see there's a path for that. So I guess from your end, do you care about any of those things at all? Like, are you measuring, I think that this company has a likelihood to succeed as part of your assessment, or you're just like synergies and uh, like really cool. And, you know, if this succeeds, it could be game changing. Where, yeah. where do you tout the line in, in that piece? Because some of it is gaming, but some of it is, you know, you actually need to prove that you're a business. Right, right, right. No, no. So I think like, um, the, my gift, the gift that I'm given is that because we work with a lot of growth stage companies, orgs with way more resources than I have at my disposal have already done that. Like when Breakthrough Energy Ventures and DCVC and like SoftBank have invested, no, that's not to say that SoftBank <laughs> doesn't necessarily invest. Right? Have they made uh, any mistakes? At some point, you just have so much money. It doesn't matter when you make mistakes. Um, but like orgs that I respect, when they've done that, I'm like, okay, there's they're going in depth far more. 
when 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 BEV does nine months of due diligence, like on a company, like there's no way I can, there's no way myself or my team can keep up with that. But that's that's what do we're you get any like, DD from those organizations? Do you look at it? Do you care about it? Or it's more, it's like a switch. If BEV yeah. invested, like they're gonna ask all the tough business questions. Really, what I'm looking at more is a uh, would the founder benefit from this and yeah. like, are they going to be impactful? Yeah. I mean, let's be honest here. It's like, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm counting They're like when they're reviewing a company, they're going to get their experts that know that space. And like, I've got experts that know, so I've got like battery, I've got my battery guy. And it's like, anytime a battery company, I'm like, what is this? What's this technology? How's it fit into this, the spectrum? Stuff like that. Um, but yeah, like I'm counting, I'm not saying that like, cool, BEV gave this so like I'm good with it because there's some companies that get investment out there where I'm like, you know what? I don't actually, I feel like this is an intermediary technology that's going to come and go. I don't see this being like a long haul. thing, And so it's not, it's not always, but it's like, it's a check mark for sure. And then when I'm talking to them, I'm interested in like, are you overly like overly confident, cocky? Like I want someone who acknowledges and recognizes the challenges in front of them. And I think, so this is like, I'm a weird guest to have on this because like when I'm looking at decks and, and things like that, I mean, I'm looking at it for what it may appear to an investor. I definitely help from that landscape, but that's not how I, I review things because when you're trying, when you're like, oh, convincing someone they're going to get a 10X, 30X, 100X, whatever on their investment, it's like that cockiness and that shoredness needs to pull them across the line. When you're working with like technical investors, it's like the cockiness isn't what's going to weigh them over. They're like, yeah, 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 I get that you're an, like you're arrogant, but like what about this technology? And like, does this fit? What's the problems here? And so um, for me, that's kind of what I'm looking and when you said like what's the companies i don't like um i'm not i'm biased against not against but i'm neutral towards software companies i'm much more biased toward hardware hard tech like stuff in the real world because i think it's really easy with software to promise a ton because you're like oh yeah we just like this and this and this and we tweak these things and it's like and there's ai involved in that and like machine learning and then like whatever and it sounds great everyone gets really excited because returns are traditionally pretty great with software um, so it sounds great, but to me until like, until software has clients and stuff like that, I'm not, I'm just not as impressed with it. And so I think like for me, when I'm talking to entrepreneurs, we have a no assholes policy. It used to be a value. Now it's been incorporated into like empathy always or something like that. Um, but the idea is like, we have a lot of people we can work with on the planet and there's no reason to be working with assholes. And honestly, you could be a guest on my podcast. But I'll never be an entrepreneur and unreasonable. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Um, <laughs> and so for me, I feel worse if I bring in someone who who I gut checked and was like, yeah, this person's good. And then on the back end, we find out that they're like just really good at being a not asshole, even when they are. Um, I feel worse about that than if I bring in a company that doesn't end up doing well, because what like companies are companies like shit happens in the market shit happens with investors like things happen to the best companies in the world that cause them to fail but if i just if i don't recognize that someone is an asshole and then everyone i work with and the members of our community and everyone now has to deal with that individual like that is that's just something that i'm <laughs> like i'm not i'm not cool with that so i think um, for me 
Um, I mean, number one, it's like people, right? It's just like talking to someone. And after you talk to enough CEOs and hear them talk about their business, you know they're doing their spiel, not because they're passionate, not because of this, not because of that. They're just like trying to convince you, trying to get you. When you ask questions, they glaze over them. When you, and like one side is like, they actually are hiding stuff. And the other side is like, I don't really care what you're asking me. I'm just going to tell you my shit. Um, and my favorite is like, we often take calls together, like at least two of us from our team. And when we hop off a call and like immediately slack each other and be like, <laughs> like that guy's not coming in. Like that feels the best, even though like sometimes it could be like the coolest company ever, but we're just like, no fucking way that human being is coming into this, this community. And that How to me, all does it take yeah. you to know? I'm gonna keep I mean, cutting we you take, off because it's yeah, that's cool. I, I no, wanna, otherwise, I'm gonna, like I, I yeah, I'm gonna ramble. Um, yeah, how do you um, like? How long does it take? I mean, my our calls are forty five. Like primary calls are half an hour to forty five minutes, and generally within that, we know, um, you just get the feeling. Then you get off calls with other CEOs, and you're just like. I will do anything I can to support this company. And that's the good feeling because honestly, that's who thrives the most within unreasonable people like hyper passionate, open to like learning. When I talk to someone and they say like, Oh my God, here's my biggest weakness. Like I am terrible in this regard. And all I want to do is get better. Like that's such a good sign of humbleness. Um, also I will say to this day, one of my favorite CEOs I've ever talked, and I will even say his name, it's Arthur K. He had a company called BioBean. I believe that's what it was called. It's a British company that took, um, after you make uh, instant coffee, you, like 96% of the bean is, is like goes as waste, but it still has a ton of oils and everything in it. And so he started this company that took like these and made them into fuel pellets. And then, and then eventually doing like, started doing like high quality, uh, high value cosmetics, like oils for cosmetics and stuff. And I got on this call. He was 26 years old. I remember hating him so much because he was just so good at what he did. He was only 26 years old. And I would ask him questions about his company and he would give me the most succinct, clear answers. And it was like, I got to the end of the call and I was like, my God, you answered everything so well, but didn't ramble. And I was like, I've got CEOs who are like serial entrepreneurs who cannot, they're just all over the fucking place when they tell me things. And I just remember being like, this guy is so on his shit. Like he knows, he knows his company so well. It's like you run into that challenge of a founder who's like a technical founder, but they really don't understand the marketing and the sales side, or they really don't understand what it takes to build partnerships with corporates or whatever. And then every once in a while you just find someone, it's like Elon Musk, right? He's like, I want to be first principles on everything. You just find someone who knows every aspect of their business insanely well. And like I, to this day, it's like I reference that all the time in my head of like, is this person close to Arthur? Um, yeah. He's got a company you know, called I, Skyroom. He's doing some cool shit. I struggle with that sometimes. I know exactly what you're talking about, right? You meet those entrepreneurs and you know, even if you haven't asked, that they have an answer for everything. But it's not just an answer. It's thoughtful. It's not like the, I know everything and I have to <laughs> prove to you that I know everything. It's that I've thought about this. I've been thorough in this and I, I understand my business. So can provide you with a comprehensive, thoughtful response yeah. that can be succinct yeah. as well. And how do you feel that balances across the range of 
like I call it a pro, uh, a hypothesis, right? Like if you have an MVP, if you're pre-revenue, you haven't maybe finished your your product, you haven't made any money, like any of these things, you kind of have a hypothesis around what your product is, what your customer wants, and how you're going to get there, and the fact that they're going to buy it. And then you kind of hit that inflection point where you begin selling it, and then you grow and grow and grow. In each one of those, you need to know different things. So how do you, like, and I've thought about this and I don't know the right answer, but how do you show that you have done the right amount of research as an entrepreneur versus just, we've done as much research as we should. Now we're just going to go and do it. And for instance, we're yeah. raising money to go and do that. And like, where do you, where do you balance that? I think this is the, honestly, if we're talking about like hate your deck stuff coming into this call, I was like, okay, here's the one thing I hate the most about decks. And I think this ties into this, which is like challenges an entrepreneur. This is, like, this is your baby. So everything matters, right? It's like every single thing, all the data points, all the components, that's that page on the deck. <laughs> That's like the spider web of like, and then this happens and then these loop in and then these products come together. And it's like, nobody, no, I've never had one of those that I've actually understood. Even like send me the deck and I review it. Nobody understands that. It means nothing. It is so unhelpful, so wildly unhelpful. And it's like, but it's like to them, it makes sense. So they, so they talk about it. Um, and so this is one of those things where at what point when you said like showing that you've done all the, the work versus like, when do we like, it's like you want the highest level of indicating to an investor or whomever that like, you know, your shit without having, or yeah, it's like, yeah, I'm hot, but I don't have to show you all my body parts. You know, um, if that's an analogy that works. You don't get to see all the parts, like, at least not during this podcast. Um, I think that that analogy worked better a couple of years ago uh yeah it well, I'm a, well obviously this is me talking i'm not imposing this on yeah you're wearing um, a really, nobody else can see this but you're wearing a really tight shirt so oh yeah very seductive um you can hear my muscles rippling underneath it just constant oh, i thought you were eating Whatever. a snickers <laughs> evan that's just the wrapper on your snickers shut up um <laughs> Yeah. And so, okay. So, and then you had, you had made a comment about like, when do we, at some point we just have to stop doing the research, stop doing the thing, stop doing the building of the proof and then just do it. I don't know. I think that's, I mean, I guess every, everything like lean startup, stuff like that. It's just like, do your MVP as soon as you can. Um, but that's weird with like a deep tech company or something. I think one of the things is also like, I think some people think that the MVP has to be the actual thing that you're doing, but the MVP can also just be the outcome of what you're doing. And like, is the outcome, like that's like even prior MVP. Um, and I think sometimes that, like you don't need money sometimes to do that. It's just like, you know, an after hours project where what if this interviewing customers and saying, imagine this was available to you. Imagine that crazy technology existed, how valuable would this be? And I think sometimes like people skip that. They're like, oh, well, if we want investors, we have to show them that we built something. And it's like, sure, people love when you built something, but they also love product market fit. And they also love when you have that. And so I think like 
going at it in stages is that and I think sometimes people get so excited and caught up in the beauty of their own design and what they're building and everything that they forget that like this thing has to actually be valuable in the real world. Um, so I have no idea. So maybe that's I'm curious, instead of listening to you, I was just thinking about the next question to ask you. Good, um, good, good, good. No, it's good. Yeah, podca- as, good podcast as, as all good interviewers do. Um, mm-hmm. and, you can shut up now. We're moving on to the next question. Evan. I have a question for you. Uh, <laughs> and my sister-in-law, she was here. She would yell at me right now for the voice I just used. Um, in fact, uh, I'm sure that uh, hour one minute nine, cut this. Cut um, Cut this. <laughs> So, um, yeah, as all good interviewers do, I was thinking about the next question and I was thinking about, um, like your, to what extent can an entrepreneur convince you that they're a good fit versus it being somewhat binary? Because it sounds to me from what you're describing, a company will come in or you'll find them. You'll say you fit into what our vision looks like based off of the product the like the vision of the product, the market, and then you know the the and I keep using this word despite the fact that I hate it. The synergies of what you're doing versus everything else that we're seeing, because we've got kind of this broad horizon and specific piece as well. So we think you're a fit, and then it sounds like you have an interview with them. You make sure they're not an asshole. You make sure that there's nothing that really makes the hair on the back of your neck stand out, and then at that point. Like maybe they're a fit. Maybe there's another part of the funnel where you have to narrow it down. But if there's a company that's like, I really want to be a part of this and they aren't an initial fit, is there any convincing you? Um, I think once or twice. So I try to come into calls without preconceived notions. Like you've run businesses, I've run businesses, you build websites, you write copy, you're like, fuck, I nailed this. And then people read it and then you like, then you meet them and then they like iterate to you what they think you do as a company. And you're like, did I send them the wrong website? Like what? And so knowing that that's a possibility, I try and come into fuck. calls without. Purpose. I have to, when I was, when I was incorporating the company, <laughs> um, I was sharing with my lawyer and they sent me paperwork back and the lawyer had filled it out as a, a deck. Uh, uh, like a building deck, like construction <laughs> advisory company or like construction company. And I was like, you do realize that like I gave you a description of, of who we are and the paralegal is like, oh yeah, sorry. It's not a big deal. Like, don't worry about it. Oh. I'm like, no, like you're sending Sounds this like to a the big deal. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure that you got, not only did you get everything about what my company does incorrectly, but then you were going to send it to the government for like the wrong NAICS codes. Um, which maybe that is totally insignificant, but sorry, <laughs> I just, I had yeah, to yeah. share that. It's called, it's called attention to detail and not all people have it. Um, yeah, yeah. So I've had a few companies that I've come in and like, I did have reasons. I'm like, this is kind of like, this is not like here as in, well, like this is not a specific example, but I always use this as the example of when people think about social enterprise or social like entrepreneur, they're like, <laughs> People send me stuff like, oh, my cousin just started this company where he goes around um, Chattanooga and pulls tra- uh, shoes out of the trash cans and then like puts them together as handbags and sells them on Etsy. And that's like up use and recycling and like you should totally support. Them. And it's like, that's not, yes, that's a business. And like, yes, that's really valuable. 
but that's not going to change the world. Like that's not, that's not a scalable solution. That's not something we can do. And so I've had some calls where I go in and I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I'll get on this call because a friend introduced us and I'm like, whatever, whatever. And they're talking to me. And then we start really talking about what they're doing, like the depth, like what's beneath the surface. It's like, oh, holy shit. Like this is actually something much bigger than I thought. And what is that? But to me, what that shows is like, they're not hitting the nerve that they should be like that. I should come into that call excited. And so I think to me, when that happens, it doesn't mean I'm like, I'll definitely get excited about them, but it also means that they've got some work to do around how they talk about their business online or what circles they're in, in terms of like their legitimacy or, or scalability. Um, and I have had a company that I talked to and I'm like, ah, I don't really know. But then a teammate will talk to them and they get something different. And that can sometimes be founder. It's like I come in, I'm like the director of venture selection. And then I have like an associate you know, on the call. And there's like that feels maybe a little bit different to like a um, like a more nervous entrepreneur. Um, and so sometimes that'll happen and they'll get like a different story. And then I read the notes. I'm like, holy shit, like this isn't what I heard. And so every once in a while, like very rarely, but that'll happen too. And so the convincing me that they should be in it, that doesn't really, I mean, honestly, it's like, as good as it sounds, like it's a fucking free lunch, we give support, we support for free. We like introduce you to investors. It sounds like everyone should do this. And I, at least half of companies are us really, really getting them to understand that it's something they should do. And still people are like, you know what? I feel like I, sh I feel like it's a big use of my time, but okay, like I'll do it. Um, and it's gotten better. I'm doing you a favor. Yeah. Sometimes. I mean, honestly, that's how I feel every time a company comes in because that's my job. Right? If we, if we don't fill cohorts then I'm not doing my job. So every company that comes in, I'm like, thank God. This is like an honor mm -hmm. that you're doing me. Um, but, uh, but then sometimes like they get it. And I think it's just this, it's, we have entrepreneurs on one end that understand innately what it is we're doing, understand the value of that network and not just network. I mean, like literally people who really care about what you're doing and they're just like, where do I sign? I'll sign right now. We literally have people that get tattoos of our logo because they're just like, this is what I've always wanted. And I want to be as deep into this <laughs> cult thing as possible. Right. We're like just there, just at the edge of cult. And that's kind of what you need. You kind of need that for that, that feeling of like support that people want. Then you have entrepreneurs at the other end of the spectrum where you're like, I know that you would, I know that when you get in a room and you do like a trust fall bullshit thing or whatever we're doing, I know that it's going to break you and you're going to truly understand the value that we have. And you're going to come out of this and you're going to be in a much different place as a CEO, but you don't see that right now. And so, but and that's where it's like, can't that know. also be construed as asshole? Like, how do you find there's like, there's a fine line then, right? Between mm -hmm. I'm enthusiastic. I want to be a part of this, which mm -hmm. is, I'm, I'm hearing you say, this is a major criteria, right? Like they fit into the thesis. Like there's already somewhat of a pre-selection to find the top ones. You're interviewing them. You're really kind of screening out. Are you an asshole? Are you, are you the mm -hmm. kind of person or CEO that will benefit from this and be a value add to the community? And then there's kind of that. Like I go to the playground, but I'm not going to play kickball with anybody else. I'm going to just like sit and read a book, but you're like, I want to, I want to get you. 
Like you're really important to me and I know you'll be super valuable, but like, how do you, how do you ascertain between you're an asshole? Because a lot of people will probably present their reaction of like, yeah, this is cool. Thanks. It's not for me. Like, how do you, Mm -hmm. how do you tell the difference between, I don't like you. You're an asshole. You're not a good fit. And like, no, I just need to convince you because this is going to be awesome. Yeah. I mean, a huge part of this is like most of our entrepreneurs come via like connections within my network or a member of my team's network. So we're almost always getting a gut check from someone who knows them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's always a plus. Um, when you're talking with them, like I said, like there's a certain thing. I mean, you know how it is. I mean, like I like everyone. I want everyone to be my friend. I like, I don't like, I'm like wildly nice to strangers while I'm like horribly impatient with my mom. <laughs> it's like the stupidest catch point. Yeah, that, um, that tracks. Yeah. But, but the reality is my job. And so it's like taking that into account. And, and one of the things is just like, some people just want to know. Some people just want to know every detail. And if sometimes you can't provide that detail, they'll be like, listen, I wish you had that information, but I understand because that's not how this is built. Or someone's like, well, that's unacceptable. Like I can't, you know, and you're like, okay, well, if you can't have, if you can't bend at all, then that's not. I also have a policy on we don't accept assholes, but we do accept fun assholes. And Mike, you might fall like that. Like um, Jesus John. Yeah, like Jesus John. Like people who are super blunt, people who speak their mind right off the bat. You mean they're you not doing Israelis? <laughs> yeah. <that's... laughs> got it. Uh, the first time I got off a call with an Israeli, because I hadn't really spoken with like the true, I like, never interacted with like an Israeli in the context of like this person's an Israeli. I got off a call. I just remember talking to somebody on my team. God, that guy was such a jerk. And I was telling them <laughs> about it. And they're like, oh no. They're like, he's Israeli. I was like, yeah. They're like, no, no, no. He's just being Israeli. And I'm like, this is a thing? Like, isn't this like a weird, is this like a weird racist <laughs> thing? And they're like, no, no, no. This is a cultural thing. And then I then once I saw it for what it was, like you turn the light, it's like you you like kind of look around the side and you're like, oh wow, actually like when seen from this angle, they're making life a lot easier because like, I know exactly how they feel. But yeah, I, I had a guy that like, after the call with him, I was like, man, that was like kind of like an aggressive call in the sense that this, this isn't an Israeli guy. It was just like hounding me on stuff and doing it like pretty aggressively. But then everything had an edge of fun to it as well. He was super self-deprecating. And by the end of the call, I was like, Am I falling in love with this guy? It's like, is he in? Like, I think this guy's in. Like, he's like super. It's like at the end of the call, like I feel like it went really well and it was really fun. And that's kind of like the feeling that that this guy's had within the community is like he speaks his mind, he says it, but he's insanely helpful. And he's like, and he and he's like, he's joking around a lot. And so there's that element of not everybody has to be nice, but you should be kind, right? It's like the difference between like, and well intentioned. Kind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, that's exactly that's actually an angle we're going for at Hate Your Deck. Um, and I think that's been a bit of my personality, which is, I think one of the coolest, um, compliments I've gotten was from one of my really good friends is Israeli. I was visiting his family incidentally without him in Israel. And he was like, you're the closest thing I've ever seen an American be to an Israeli. But I'm also <laughs> like, pause, hard stop. I'm like direct asshole. But at the same time I do it with the intent of being good and also mm-hmm. with a healthy dose of personal entertainment. But, you know, that's that's for in my, in my free time. But for me, it's like we want to be direct, but we also don't take ourselves seriously and we need to be a value add. 
but like let's let's do our best to avoid mincing around words um yeah and just get to the point and, and like I let's think- make sure that whatever we're saying is done in a way that people will absorb it and like they're not going to be turned off but also will be helpful to them in the end right i mean like, think about like every entrepreneur says i'd rather get a no than a maybe from an investor, right? And a maybe is being nice. A maybe is like, oh, I don't want to crush them, you know, but I know I'm not going to invest in them. Whereas a no is like, you're being kind. It's like, literally you're saying like, listen, I'm not interested and I won't be interested. Like stop wasting energy on me. Like go do it somewhere else. Right. And so in, in like, I think that level of like the, of the kindness of giving the hard news, but also feeling like, Listen, like I'm just doing this for about. We have a thing at Unreasonable called Courageous Conversations, and my team and I do it naturally. But it's like become such a part of what we do, where the courageous conversation is like, "Hey, we aren't working too well together. Can I like address this?" Right? It's like, "Hey, like I got some some feedback or whatever for you." Um, and we do it so regularly now that it's like there's no weirdness around. Like that's a humans are really bad at receiving that critical feedback, right? But Everybody that ever says. Like, I'm really good at getting feedback. It actually means I need baby gloves. Like, yeah, yeah. there's there's <laughs> nobody I've ever met that that is actually good at getting feedback that says they're getting like those two things. Saying you're good at it and actually doing it don't exist in the wild. Yeah. Well, I think for us, it's like become this thing where it's so commonplace of just like, all right, like what are we talking about this? And we'll do it as a team with each other at the beginning of the week. We're like, any bullshit happened that like we need to bring up? And it's like, oh, I did, you did this thing. And like, I really didn't like it. Oh, that sucks. But all right, I'll keep that in mind for the future. And I think like having that element of when you go in, especially for Hate Your Deck, you have that relationship where it's like, listen, I'm not here to be. I'm not going to wear the baby gloves. Know that it's all coming from a place of like, you're my client and I'm here to support you. But like, I'm also not going to waste your time. So like, I'm going to give you feedback. What is it? It's called, uh, there's this movie, um, uh, a, uh, Theodore Roosevelt werewolf hunter or something like that. It was like a B movie from years ago. It's hilarious. It's so ridiculous, but there's a line in it where he says, I'm going to give this to straight. Uh, it's a straight barbershop talk, no razors, no chalk. And it's just this idea of like, I'm going to tell you exactly what, what the deal is. And that's become our term on the team is like, it's barbershop talk time. Like we're not like, we're not here to mince words. And so you can take that if you want, you can use that for hate attack. It's all right. Do I have to cite you when I do it? Yes. yes. Every time. But then also okay, cite me it. citing, citing a movie that I can't remember the name to. Got it. Um, and then misquoting. Right, right, right. Some ver- it's some ver- It'd be really funny if you think of it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Think of a joke and then laugh. And then I'm going to tell you the parts of it that I remember. Yeah. Um, no, and that's one of the things that's kind of driven me crazy in the past has been, you know, the amount of times, I'm sure you get this too, the amount of times that somebody will reach out to me and say, I want to be in venture capital. I want to do this. And it's like, okay, cool. Like, why? Like, or like, like, why do you think you're qualified? And not in a judgmental way, but just like walk me through why you want to work in this industry that is incredibly competitive, that pays next to nothing, that is really predicated off of just the roll of a dice in succeeding. Yeah. Um, in getting, succeeding in getting a job and succeeding in making a lot of money. Um, and they're like, well, like, you know, I want to work in finance and I asked the VC what I would need to do. And they said this, or like people would be like, I'm thinking about getting my MBA. Why? Because I want to work in venture capital. And somebody told me that the only way to get in venture capital is to get an MBA. I'm like, that's a lazy answer. 
That's somebody that didn't want to take five minutes to explain and be honest how this industry works and told you to go spend $80,000 instead as the lazy answer to give you a tiny slimmer, like sliver of hope and make you jump through two years of work. Or it's like, you know, and, and the thing that drives me crazy too is when founders come and they're like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm meeting with these investors and they gave me this feedback and they said like, we're not a good fit right now, but they want to see this milestone right. and then we'll get there. And it's like, well, you haven't thought about your market. You haven't really figured out your product. You haven't ascertained what the value to the customer is. And like the product, they, like the next milestone they want to see is actually going to take you forever to get to a ton of money, a ton of time. And it's not really going to move the needle. If you really dissect where your business is and where your customers are, they gave you a lazy answer to give you false hope to try and be nice and to save themselves from having an honest conversation with you for mm -hmm. five minutes or for 10 minutes. And it drives me crazy when people whose job it is to do this, even if they're right. overwhelmed, can't take a few extra minutes and just be like, you are not a fit. Yeah, it is. You're not a fit for our thesis, but also your business is dumb and it might be fixable. Like, yeah. like you're, yeah. the way that you've designed your business to run doesn't make sense. And it's not my job as the investor to figure that out. But until you do it, I'm not interested. So like you figure yeah. it out and if it makes sense, come back to me. And investors will just be like, well, I want to see it a little bit further along instead. And that's a terrible euphemism that leads people in the wrong direction. And it gives them <laughs> false hope. The number of times I've like, I, I, I push companies to investors a lot. If I think it even falls remotely in their mandate, because you never know what might float their boat. Get their yeah, you're not the decision stuff. maker for the investor. Yeah. So I send stuff over and then they, and then they write back. And, and a lot of times, like, I feel like I have like pretty good relationship with investors and I work with investors that I like, and I, I think are good, but sometimes you get back like, Hey, not, not good. And it's like, can you please provide some color? Because like, this is really helpful to the entrepreneur and how, how hard is it? You know why you don't like it. So just, just tell me. And, and the good investors in my mind are the ones that will respond with just a few sentences. And it's every time I send that to an entrepreneur, they're like, oh, that's amazing. Like, and maybe it's something they can shift or maybe it's like, ah, clearly we're actually just not a good fit for that investor. That is such a valuable thing. And I think that's the difference between like, that's the difference to me between a good investor and just literally someone who's in it for the money. They're like, I'm in this and that's it versus like, I like entrepreneurship. I like what these people do. And I don't know. I think that's a, it's a real dick well, move. I think, you know, I'm going to make a clear plug for hate your deck, but really anybody that's listening to this could just do it themselves. Um, all two, all but, two listeners at this point. Yeah. Uh, so you and me, either of us are welcome <laughs> to do this in the free time. I, and this was really a byproduct by accident that I think has become a crux of the service is you give us your deck and we like, I am, I'm a former VC, um, like seen hundreds of companies, if not more, although it's dangerous to say thousands because it's a significant amount. And I'm going, I'm really diving out a weird rabbit hole here. I'm going to come back out and finish this, this thought out. I mean, um, psychologically, so, a thousand is a large number. <laughs> all right, let's, let's run the math. I've been, I've been in this space for this long. That means that every week, um, okay, so you give the deck, I go through it as a VC, I bring in a guest VC, we record ourselves doing an initial screen of this, like live. We do not do it with the investor there because this is supposed to be hold no punches and it's supposed to be the first time we look at it. So maybe we'll look at it for 
we'll have like 30 minutes beforehand to review, but it's really supposed to be initial reaction. And that way, like you're actually getting the investors, not their like toned down diplomatic talk, but like the genuine reaction of just like, the fuck, why are you still telling me this? We're nine slides in and I don't know what you do yet. And it's like seeing that. And, you know, most of the time that I've given these videos back to people, they're like, it was really difficult for me to, to see this and really painful, but it was incredibly useful. And, you know, there's, it's very hard to find people that are qualified because like after the first time you see it and after the first time you get that really annoyed response, when you actually have to write the diplomatic email to somebody, you really need to be very specific with your words and then you need mm -hmm. to think about how are they going to take it. But if you can just give them the raw, like, this is terrible. And like, this is why it's terrible. It's actually super useful. Um, and I have found that it's been really cathartic. Maybe that's the absolute worst word um, for me, maybe for, for getting my anger out. But it's been, it's been definitely like the sort of thing that most founders have not gotten back. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like people go to that, what is it, Chicago? It's that place where they just yell at you when you order and they're like, hey, you piece of shit. Like, get up here. When you're Aren't they on roller out, skates you know? too when they do that? Yeah. Maybe. And they punch you in the nuts, I think. Um, yeah. As they roll. By. No, that's, no uh, that's a dungeon. That's a dungeon in Chicago. Totally different thing. Okay. <laughs> um, a lot more ball gags in that one. Um, mm -hmm. Cut that. Um, <laughs> no, that like. <laughs> Jesus. Um, no, that, that like I think I think that's why I think hate your deck is on to something where it's like there's an entertainment value in it. I think when people are joking, like when there is that level of just like, all right, like get ready to receive some stuff. And Mike, like you're a funny guy. And so it's like there's going to be some elements of humor in there. And I think people getting that, it makes them, it puts them in a much more perceptive place like oh okay like all right cool like oh, that was uncomfortable but now i know exactly where i need to be and they know that anything they receive in the future comes from a place a place of love hate your deck i think love the, you the, the terrifying yeah i think i want our tagline to be something like uh go to your friends for hugs come to us for tough love <laughs> i know that's terrible um all the, the yeah. people all the the two audience members that listen to this at no branding please shoot over better ideas. Uh, I'm all ears. I'm, I'm talented in like one way. And the same way that you have a superpower, uh, mine is not in knowing how to come up with catchphrases. Yeah. Actually, I'm still figuring out what mine is. I'll let you know when You're I find there. it. Cool. Well, Evan, thank you a ton. Um, this has been great. I don't know how to do my outros yet. So uh, I'm Mike and I hate your deck. Thanks for listening to this episode of Hate Your Deck, the podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lightman. Check out our website, hateyourdeck.com, to learn more about our deck services. Have any thoughts on this episode? Let me know on Twitter at hateyourdeck. I want to hear from you. Catch you next time.